Good morning. What a joy it is to be in the house of the living Lord. And what a joy it is to be learning the scriptures so thoroughly as I did this week. That was uh, part of my thanksgiving, is giving thanks to be able to dig deep into the word of God. So uh, just to recap a little bit, since we had a couple of visiting pastors here. Uh, Since late March, we've been working through the wonderful gospel of Mark. And as you may recall, it was the first gospel written, and it was penned by John Mark under the power of the Holy Spirit. Mark was the understudy of Peter. So this gospel has been nicknamed the gospel of Peter, according to Mark. So Mark wrote this letter to the Corinthians of Rome who were under persecution from Nero. They had an urgent need to hear this gospel. It gave them the first written record of the ministry and the works of their Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I imagined it was comforting to the people to read over and over in their homes as they gathered in small groups. Many of those read it while hiding from the people who would like to see them thrown to the wild beasts in the arenas. So Mark follows the uh, ministry of Jesus from the time it began when he was about 30. It started with his baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River in chapter 1. Since then, he's been teaching and healing all over the land. The scene this week is Jerusalem. The year is about 30 AD. It is the Passover week of that year. The month is the Jewish month of Nisan. God the Father has established a very firm timetable for the events of this week, and Jesus is aware of it. Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem was on Monday the 10th. On Tuesday, he came in and attacked and assaulted the temple, which Eliot covered last time. By the time we come to today's text, it's Wednesday. On the next day, Thursday, it will be the Passover meal. And the cross and crucifixion is on Friday. This is the Passion Week of Christ. So these are the last days of our Lord's life and ministry. Earlier in chapter 11, we saw his arrival in Jerusalem in what was called the triumphal entry. At the end of that section, we saw Jesus in the temple after dark, looking around at everything. And in that passage, we imagine Jesus as the reformer of the time, realizing the train wreck that the Jewish religion had become. Two weeks ago, Eliot covered verses 12 through 19, which followed and explained that Jesus compared these people to the unproductive fig tree as taught by the prophet Jeremiah. Looking for fruit, Jesus found nothing but leaves. With the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus was teaching his disciples a lesson about fruitlessness. This was 
an enacted parable, a prophetic symbol of the coming destruction of the temple, an imminent judgment upon Israel. The barren fig tree represented the same religious legalism that we see in some churches today. It promised satisfaction, yet leaves the people spiritually hungry. The church's leaders are concerned with wealth and the status and pleasing of men. They're not concerned about being spiritually wealthy with knowledge of God and righteousness standing before God. Their worship has become superficial and inauthentic. Today, we'll cover the last section in this chapter in two parts. The first part is verses 20 through 25. The subject here is prayer. As you might think, that this is a kind of an odd place to do a lesson on prayer. It might seem that there could be other more pertinent things to talk about, given what is coming in the Lord's next couple of days. His dying, rising, and ascending, and all that's bound up in that is ahead of them. But this lesson is absolutely critical. And it's critical at this point as he has a short time to finish preparing his disciples to be able to continue without him. As is Mark's style, he gives us brief scenes all happening in a sequence. Let's read now verse 20 through 25, the word of the Lord. As they passed by in the morning... They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, for whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, as we study these verses, help us know Jesus better. They kept more like him, we ask, to be able to speak and hear your voice and submit to it. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So during this week, Jesus and his apostles were staying at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany, just east of Jerusalem. Each morning, they would walk the few miles into the city, and each evening, they would return to Bethany. It's now Wednesday morning. As they passed by in the morning, the verses say, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. As Eliot taught us last time, the fig tree was a visual aid Jesus used from the prophet Jeremiah. What Jesus does here is an expression of what we refer to as prophetic symbolism. Jesus is using the fig tree to set forth the judgment that is about to fall on Jerusalem. 
By cursing the tree, Jesus not only performed his only destructive miracle recorded, but prophesied again the coming judgment on Israel by the Romans in 70 A.D. And they saw that the fig tree that Jesus cursed the day before has withered completely to its roots. In other words, judgment upon the temple was complete. Jesus is saying that way of doing things is done with. And there's a new way that's being ushered in. And you have, if you imagine yourself as one of the apostles, say Peter, for instance, who were taught all their lives to see the temple as the center of their faith, then, yesterday, Tuesday, you came into the temple with your teacher, Jesus, and saw him overturn the tables and yell at all the people. And you're thinking that he doesn't approve of the temple anymore. And you're confused. Then, on the way home, you hear him curse the fig tree. You may have had some discussion with Jesus back at home that night. And maybe you began to understand. Then, today, as you pass by that fig tree, you see it's devastated. Verse 21. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Here is a demonstration of Jesus' power. The tree died immediately. Peter is surprised on account of the speed that it happened. Verse 20, and Jesus answers him, have faith in God. This is where it starts to get difficult. First, why does Mark say Jesus answered them? It didn't seem like Peter was even asking a question. He was just saying, look, the tree you cursed is withered. But there was a question which Jesus sensed was behind Peter's exclamation. This was a teaching moment. Jesus had precious little time left with these men. He was about to teach them about the power that they would be able to harness which he had just demonstrated on the fig tree. That is the power of effective spirit-led prayer, which would be theirs. But the second difficulty, there's another one here, is in what Jesus said. He said, have faith in God. Now, at first, it seems like a bit of an awkward transition, doesn't it? From Peter's comment, the fig tree that you cursed is withered to have faith in God and the instruction on prayer which followed that. Well, there's a word called hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is a word describing how we interpret the Bible. There's an important hermeneutical principle. It says, we need to make sure that we interpret a difficult passage in light of all Scripture. So let's read the parallel account of this in Matthew 21.20 for some clues. So Matthew 21.20. It says, When the disciples saw it, that is the fig tree, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? So they're asking, How does this happen? How does this happen so quickly? 
You've never seen anything like this. And if you've seen a, a fig tree, they're pretty, pretty good size. So this is a fig tree now that has been just devastated. So Jesus now teaches them how they can make similar things happen when they need it. And it begins with God. In other words, all such displays of power, whether it be casting out demons, healing, or just this little one of the fig tree, they come from God. And then he begins to talk about how to call on divine power. They're going to need to know this. How are they going to call on divine power like that when he's not around? The verses which follow reinforce the importance. God displays his power in such mighty ways through choice and faithful servants. That anchors my own confidence that he hears and answers prayer. Summarized in Hebrews 11 are the accounts of the faith of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and many more. Verse 23, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. It's a little long, so I'm going to repeat it now, just for, so that you can hear what's being said here. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, he might be pointing up at the mountain next, next to him, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. It's an audacious statement. Some of us would rather skim over verses like this and maybe try to qualify them. As soon as somebody raises this verse and tries to misuse it, we immediately explain to them that it doesn't really mean what it says. And what it means is this. And what it means is that. It, when it means is something else. So much so that people are left saying, well, I wonder why this verse is even in the Bible. But moving a mountain was a fairly common phrase used by the rabbis of the day for something which was considered impossible, much like the camel going through the eye of a needle, which we studied in Mark 10. This passage is often misused, and people try to make it mean something that it does not mean. Some try and make it say that if only you had enough faith with your own will, you could do what you want. That is not what it means. Scripture interprets Scripture, and nowhere in the Bible do we find anything like that. So with our principle of interpreting Scripture with Scripture, we only need to turn forward a few pages to Mark 14 to see an example of a more complete prayer which informs us. So Mark 14, and let's look at verses 32 to 36. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John 
and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So do you see the balance here? Jesus has absolute confidence in God's power. Father, everything is possible for you. I am absolutely confident in your power. Secondly, I am completely submitted to your will. Total confidence in his power, complete submission to his will, so that that very boldness, that very childlikeness, that very enthusiasm, the vastness of asking God to do impossible things is not lessened by God's sovereignty. It is managed graciously by God's sovereignty. If I earnestly pray to God for faith and strength, the answer will only be regulated by God's sovereignty. And it is only the sovereign purpose of God that restricts the answer of the prayer of Christ. We must pray according to God's will. If God wills it, it will happen. Mountains will move. And Jesus now takes the men and prepares them. He instructs them to have a bold, fearless faith. He wants them to have such confidence in God that they are prepared to ask him to do things that are seemingly impossible. They should have the boldness and confidence to ask God, who is too wise to make mistakes, who is too kind to be cruel, and is too powerful to be restrained by the natural realm to perform miracles if he so chooses. And as we read in the Acts of the Apostles, there are accounts revealing the proof of what Jesus is teaching and how it played out as they carried out the Great Commission. Here's an example from Acts 3, verses 1 through 10. So let's turn there. It shows the power of Peter's faith in the will of God, for the work of God. This is the first recorded act of the apostles after Pentecost. It didn't take long before Peter's faith was put to the test. We read in Acts 3, 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a lame man from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter direct his gaze at, directed his gaze at him and said, as did John, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Stop there for a second. Peter may have remembered at that time what Jesus said to him about 
His faith being able to move mountains and do the impossible. If Peter's faith was like it was earlier, he would not have been able to do what followed with such conviction. We continue in Acts 3 with verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat in the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement of what had happened to him. So with the whole crowd watching, he said, Well, silver and gold I have none, but hold on to my hand. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, just stand up and walk. That's faith. Jesus is encouraging his disciples to trust God with all that they need for doing God's work. This encouragement is especially needed now after Jesus has passed judgment on the temple and the Jewish leadership. He knows that his time with them is short, and they will need this boldness and power very soon. And then he goes on to say, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. And repeat that. And does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. You may realize here that there is a whole theology that has permeated the Christian world today that is based almost exclusively on this text. The word of faith movement in our day and the movement that teaches what we call name it and claim it or some forms of faith healing say all you have to do to change the external world around you is to claim it, believe it, and it will be so. People such as Joel Olstein, Kenneth Copeland, Mike Murdoch, Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, Creflo Dollar, and many others have popularized this idea. It's not surprising to me that this kind of movement has appeared at a time in our culture where the New Age movement, at the same time, has invaded the secular world. What is at the core of the New Age movement, and in many related Christian religious movements, of our time is the idea that is at its bottom, that people can just will things to happen on their own. There's a word for that. We call it magic. And this passage, they claim, gives them the biblical justification. Jesus said, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. 
Now, what's wrong with taking that at face value? What's wrong with that? Any particular statement like this has to be understood in the light of all of the teaching of prayer in the New Testament and all of the qualifications that the New Testament gives about what God listens to in our prayers. If we just lift this verse out of context and ignore the rest of the teaching of the New Testament, you get fooled into this idea of name it and claim it. The entire scripture, both Old and New Testaments, Jesus as well as the apostles and prophets, give us a wealth of instruction about prayer, about the power of prayer, about the importance of when we pray, to pray trusting God, who is the one who listens to our prayer, and trusting God for the answers to those prayers. And, in, and so, any idea like this has to be understood in the light of all of the teaching of prayer in the New Testament, all of the qualifications that the New Testament gives about the God who listens to our prayers. If we just lift this verse out of context and ignore the rest of the teaching of the New Testament, you get this magical business of name it and claim it. The power to effect righteous change starts with faith in God and his sovereign will. And it's called on by prayer. Prayer is the power source that God has given us. We have access to God through the salvation of Jesus Christ. We can cry out to him. We need to call upon him continually in prayer. Verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. You can never out-ask God. He owns everything. But following our rule of interpreting Scripture with Scripture, it doesn't mean that you're going to get everything. But you can't ask but you can ask him whatever you ask. In fact, James seems to have paid pretty close attention to the Gospel of Mark, and he clarifies this in chapter 4 of his letter. So let's turn to James 4. We're going to read verses, the latter half of verse 2 and verse 3. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your possessions, on your passions. In other words, James says, you don't have the courage to ask, but then if you do ask, if you do work up the courage and ask, your motives are all wrong. But when we pray to God, we pray to all of God, all his characteristics, not just one characteristic or another. In other words, when you lift up your prayer and you're asking the Lord in the power of love to give you what you want, you at the one and same time are also praying to the wisdom of his love to know that he will give you what you actually need. Do you see that when you pray to the Lord, you're praying in the power of love to do whatever he can but you're also praying in the wisdom of his love that he will determine what is actually right and good for you. As an example, I would imagine that many of us parents here 
would want to give our child everything. But if our small child asked for a sharp knife or a loaded gun, he wouldn't hand it to him. If your preteen wanted to drive your car, I would imagine you wouldn't hand her the keys. Even though your heart and your love would want to see your child happy, at the same time, the wisdom of your parenting will tell you to withhold certain things at certain times. And so when we pray to the Lord, yes, he can do the impossible. When we pray to God, we're praying in the power of his love to do everything we want him to do, but we're also praying in the wisdom of his love to know what we need and when we need it. And that is the point in the helpful use of prayer that we need to recognize. That is the point that Mark is trying to make here. Matthew 6, 5 says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. This teaches us that we must pray with humility and sincerity. We must pray consistently and persistently. Matthew 7, 7 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Jesus is encouraging his disciples to trust God with all they need for doing God's work so that they might be sure that God will accomplish what they ask. In fact, they may be so sure that it will appear almost as if they had already received it when they pray it. Also, our prayers are, are framed by charity, for love for all who are the objects of our prayers, and also that our prayers are framed ultimately by the sovereignty of God, and by the submission to God's will. God will make the right response for those who trust him for the right things in the right way, who have confidence in him. The Lord understands our hearts when we cry out to him in prayer. He understands our cries for the healing of our bodies when we or who we love are sick or injured. He understands the cry for healing in our relationships when our spouse is angry or disappoints us. He understands the pain we feel when our children that he gave us to raise upset and torment us with their cynicism and their revolt. He understands our struggles with money and finances he understands all that we experience. And he will never forsake us. And he will never withhold anything good from us. And all things work together for good if we faithfully ask. We can empty out our hearts to him in prayer. But always with this qualifying statement, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Why? His way, the solution to our sickness, our injury, our disappointment, 
and trouble is greater, purer, wiser, more generous, more gracious, more merciful than anything you could ever imagine. His way. And this passage has given us a lesson on faith. It says that our faith needs to be in God. Our faith and confidence is in the power and purposes of God, that he can do more than we could ever imagine. He can do miracles, but he also has the love and wisdom to know the best way. Verse 25. And whenever you stand, in pr- stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. We forgive others. Notice how he says it. And whenever you stand praying, that was the posture of the Jewish prayer. They would be standing. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, notice that it does not say to make them repent first. It does not say make them ask for forgiveness first. It does not say, hey, that thing that they did, it was so bad that I can't forgive him. It says, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. And if we don't, guess what happens here? So that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. The fruit of faith is that we forgive everyone, even when they don't deserve it, even when they haven't asked for it. We just forgive. If we do not do that, guess what doesn't happen? We are not forgiven. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. That's a warning. Sometimes forgiving people seems like it's impossible. But as we learned in the last verses, God majors in the impossible things. Jesus teaches his disciples of another important part of praying beyond faith. That is that the heart should be pure. We are reminded of Jesus' parable, which Ed read earlier in Matthew, of how God looks at the unforgiving heart. So that was in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 25. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one who was brought to him owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. 
And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgive you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's the words of Jesus. It's inconceivable in terms of this parable that we who have been forgiven so much should refuse to forgive the small debts of others against us. And yet, we are tempted to do it, aren't we? You can't accept the full forgiveness of God and then be unforgiving towards somebody else. Here's the moral component in effective prayer. Forgive if you have anything against anyone. Ephesians 4.32 is instructive. It says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We have a tremendous promise and privilege to call on the Lord in believing prayer, consistent with his will and purpose. What a comfort. Pray that God would draw you so close that you continually feel his presence and that you find yourself continually talking with him, asking for his will to be done in every encounter as we go through our days. The second part of our study is in verses 27 to 33. The subject of this part is who has authority. From the very, very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, as Mark records it, this question of authority has been a thorn in the side of the religious teachers. And I want you to see it for yourself. So let's just turn back to Mark 1 and look at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath... He, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And no one who has ever walked on this earth has had such authority as Jesus Christ. He had supreme authority, perfect authority, heavenly authority, and he exercised it. It's interesting to note that Jesus never asked for permission from anyone to do anything. No one. He was not under any earthly authority. 
who possessed all authority in himself as the divine son of God. The only authority in his life was that he was in perfect harmony with the Father and with the Spirit, and they did what he did in the Father's will. He only had one authority in his life, and that was God the Father, who he knew perfectly. Jesus never consulted with the Pharisees, scribes, or rabbis to get permission to do anything. Everything he said came from himself. Every act he took was driven, begun, established, and finished on his own will. He had the supreme freedom to do and say whatever he wanted to do and say. And it was always correct, and it was always genuine. More than that, it was always perfect. He was the ultimate authority. He exercised supreme power. He not only had the authority to say what he said, he had the authority to do what he did. And he had the power to complete what he, whatever he started. He rejected the Jewish authorities. He never consulted them because they were apostate. They had defected from true religion. They didn't know God, and they didn't represent God. They were illegitimate. They were the earthly suppliers of a fraudulent Judaism. They ran the temple and turned it into a robber's den. They had no real power and no real authority at all in Jesus' eyes. They were the enemies of God, the enemies of the truth, the enemies of the gospel. So let's read verses 27 to 33, and we'll see this encounter with Jewish leaders and Jesus. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people. For they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. When the Jewish leaders challenged the basis of Jesus' authority, they highlighted the same issue that confronts all who consider the claims of Christ. We will admit that Jesus rightfully, that is, will we, will you and I admit that Jesus rightfully has authority over our lives? These verses remind us that by nature, none of us wants to surrender to Jesus' demands. We need God's grace to humble us into seeing Jesus as our King and our Lord. We recall of how Jesus usually avoided all-out conflict with the leaders of the Jews. But now it's Wednesday of Passion Week, and he's on plan 
to be nailed to the cross on Friday, and it's time for the open conflict to begin. Verse 27, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. The temple was ground zero for the conflict that needed to happen. The temple is massive, acres and acres and acres of massive courtyard. This is a very rabbinic way to teach. You move around, you walk through the courtyard, milling around with huge crowds following you. Certainly with an incredible amount of excitement, having experienced what they did on the day before, he's moving through the temple. The whole Sanhedrin was there. Chief priests, scribes, elders, they're all there. By this time, they knew about Jesus. They'd feared him, but now they had to confront him. Remember, Jesus was turning over tables and ordering the merchants out of the temple. The whole throng of people would see Jesus' actions and authority being unopposed. The merchants were undoubtedly complaining. These people needed to act. These guys came from the right background. They had the proper education. They were credentialed. Therefore, they believed that it was their right to ensure that nothing went wrong in terms of Judaism while on their watch. That's why they didn't like this fake rabbi, because he didn't come from the right background. He hadn't attended the right schools. He didn't possess any of the necessary credentials. The momentum was building. They think, we've got Jesus now because of what he's done. Doing what he did to the temple without permission because this constitutes blasphemy in the minds of epic proportions. If ever there was a blasphemy, doing this in the temple was the worst. They were convinced that he was the ultimate blasphemer. And the crowd gathered around him as the people listened to him. And this little pack of religious establishments show up and their confrontation is pretty straightforward. They said to him, verse 28, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you the authority to do them? So they just thought up this question, which I'm sure was to silence him, knowing that Jesus was obviously smart, but after all, he was just the son of an uneducated carpenter from Nazareth. They were pedigreed. They were the ones who held the high positions. They challenged his authority. They must have felt like they had set the trap well, and there was no way out for Jesus. This one question would shut him up and make him leave. They know what the answer to the question is. They know that he would give what he would give as an answer. When they said, where is your authority? They knew what he would say. My authority comes from God. They know that. They know he had claimed that. He has claimed to be God in their presence. The Gospel of John says it. 
He made himself equal with God, and they knew it, and they wanted that answer. They want him to say, my authority comes from God. And then they can say, he is for sure a blasphemer. Did you hear him? They didn't want the gospel preached in the temple. They wanted it to stop. They didn't want the truth taught in the temple, of course. They didn't want their system dismantled by him. But it was more important to get Jesus condemned and dead than anything else. And it must have been with a measure of anticipation and smugness that they came to ask, because after all, as we've noted, they were the ones that had the authorization. They were the ones that had the schooling. They were the ones that had the background. They knew that he had none of this. But how short-lived that experience must have been because Jesus gets them in his counter-question. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Jesus, having already experienced the corruption of the temple, their false worship, and their making a mockery of true worship, had already pronounced judgment on them with the fig tree illustration. He would not put up with their foolishness any longer. That is honest. That is not contrived. That is a matter-of-fact offer that Jesus makes to them. Tell me. Jesus is magnificently superb in his response. They're really in a corner now. If they said the ministry of John is from God, they would have to admit that Jesus is the Messiah because that's the one what John said about, that he was. If they say the ministry of John is not from God, it's from men, then they've got the problem because all the people knew that John was the real prophet. You can't take John without Jesus, and you can't throw away Jesus without throwing away John. We can see Jesus bristling at the question as he, ans- as he says, answer me twice, as if he knew that they would have no answer. Verse 31, and then they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, will he say, why did then you not believe John? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was a real prophet. You understand a predicament, right? What are they going to do? The praise of men was everything to them. It was absolutely everything Control, reputation, dignity, privilege. Everything would come undone if they couldn't get the right answer. Just the opposite of what they wanted would happen to them. They're trapped. If they say John's ministry is from God, then they have to accept Jesus. And that they cannot do. If they say it's from men, they're more likely to get stoned to death. And so... They were reduced to the worst possible thing that can happen to somebody who has this scholarly pride. Verse 33, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
And surely this is one of the most pathetic scenes in the whole of Mark's gospel. That must have been hard for them to say. They knew the truth, but they were forced to say that they didn't. That is pragmatism, ruling over truth. But they can't admit what they know because it will demand either their obedience to the Lordship of Christ or it will put them in an unfavorable position with the majority. So essentially what they're doing is playing politics with Jesus. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he had to tell those who were around him, I speak nothing on my own authority. In John 12, verse 49 and 50, he says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This authority is not just a question of the first century scribes and Pharisees. It's the ultimate question that the skeptic of the South Bay faces today. As you listen to this, you may realize that maybe you are in that situation. You may not yet have submitted your will totally to Christ. You have not yet surrendered to his authority and embraced him as your Savior and Lord. Is it because you doubt his authority? Are you thinking in your heart, who is Jesus to tell me what to do? Who does he think he is? By what authority does he command you to repent of your sins and come to him? It is by authority that is given to him by God himself. John 3, 16 to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whatever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever does not believe stands condemned before God. It's an issue of authority. And until now, we bow, and, and until we bow to the authority of Jesus, Acknowledging his sovereignty over our life, our time, our abilities, our finances, everything. Then we will never know him as Lord and Savior. Next week, or the next time we preach from Mark, the confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish leaders continues into chapter 12 as Jesus teaches on the parable of the ungrateful tenants and paying taxes to Caesar. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word gives us a wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ 
Thank you for challenging us as we examine the details. Thank you for the depth of wisdom that you show us in this book. Thank you that you've given us minds that we can think these issues out. Gracious God, come to each of us today and grant that we might, by your grace, bow down before the authority of Jesus and embrace him as our Lord and Savior, rather than one day bow before him and meet him as our judge. I pray, Lord, for those who have heard the truth over and over but have not yet embraced Christ. Lord, would you save them before it's too late, before they reach the point that you have nothing more to say to them. Place within them the fear of that reality and help them take refuge in Jesus. Now, Father, send us on our way refreshed with renewed minds that we may know what is good and acceptable and perfect in the will you have for us. All to the glory of your Son, for whom we live and whom we serve. Amen.